All right, well, you can open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to finish up this chapter as we make some more progress in our trek through Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. You know, the Olympics roll around every couple years, featuring scores of athletes competing in dozens of sports from, I think, over 100 countries. And no one has the time or the interest to watch them all. It would take forever. Instead, most of us rely on that highlight reel. You just want to tune in for that evening little primetime session, seeing all the highlights, the best of the best. Show me just the gold medal matches, and that's it. People just want the highlights. And when you think about it, that's pretty much what the Gospels are. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're the highlights of the ministry of Christ. We're getting the report of the greatest words and deeds of Jesus, all meant to reveal something about his person and his work, which is the source of our salvation. Now, because we're dealing with eternal matters and because we love this Lord, we all actually want more than just the highlights. We would be happy to sit through more. We, we would love to hear more about his life, his ministry. What else did he do? And certainly more could be written, as John says at the end of his gospel, John 21 verse 25, he said, there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. We wonder, what else did he teach? What other miracles did he perform? But we know that what has been revealed in the scriptures is sufficient to know him, to follow him. We've been given everything we need for life and godliness, so it it suffices for now for us to stick to what has been revealed. Let's give our full attention to the highlights that we do have. And that is very much the case with Matthew 8 and 9. That's what's going on in Matthew 8 and 9. Matthew is kind of giving us his own little highlight reel here, just of the miracles of Jesus, a little special highlight reel of the miracles of Jesus. And Jesus performed way more miracles than these, but Matthew's like handpicking nine of them, stringing them together more thematically than chronologically, but a true record nonetheless. These miracles are given that we might know something about the person of Jesus, that he is more than a man. He is the God-man. He's shown to wield the full power and authority of God because he is God. And these miracles are also given that we might know something of the work of Jesus. And granted, the, the real work he came to do would be on that cross, That's where he died to make atonement for sins, to defeat the works of the devil, to overcome death itself. But throughout his ministry, his earthly ministry, he would, in a way, preview that work, that victory. He would, you might say, give a a token of the final work he would do. And one of those tokens comes in our text today. We see Christ's great deliverance, a work of deliverance. Here we have a record of Jesus casting out demons in a memorable way. And this passage here in Matthew lifts the veil on an unseen world of spiritual beings and how they afflict mankind. Get to a passage like this, questions abound. Like, you know, biblically, what is a demon? Who are they? Where do they come from? What do they do? And suffice it to say, just in short, the Bible presents demons as real spiritual beings who live in a perpetual rebellion against God They exist to subvert his will, get us to do the same. They they are real and they can afflict mankind. But we can also say this, 
that Jesus has total authority over them. They present no threat to his lordship. And as rebels against God's will, that they will face certain judgment. This is what we see previewed every time Jesus casts out a demon. He's giving a taste, a preview of the work he would accomplish on the cross. Because there, in addition to paying for our sins, he would conquer the devil. Don't forget what was promised from the very beginning, right? After the fall of mankind, God gave the first kernel gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, where he said, speaking to the devil and the woman, he said, I will put enmity between you, the devil, and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Speaking of the seed. That's it, just a little kernel promise. But one day, a great seed of the woman would come and he would deal a fatal blow to the devil and his works in corrupting mankind. That seed is Jesus and that finishing work was on the cross. First John 3.8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. He came to free those who were held under the power of death through his own atoning death and resurrection. And Christ accomplished that victory on the cross. Now here in Matthew's gospel, though we're not, we're not at the cross yet, here in our text, we see a, a legitimate preview of that. We have a, a display of Christ's total authority over Satan and demons. And it comes in a very memorable manner. Matthew 8, 28 through 34, finish the chapter. This is the story of the Gerasene demoniac. It's not just a story, though. This is God's word, his truth revealed here in narrative form. It's teaching us something vital about the person, the work of Jesus. And look, it's our goal, same as every week, just to deeply study, understand what God's word means and how it's meant to guide us here in the church today. And so let's do that now with this next episode. Here in Matthew 8 9, this is the, the fifth miraculous account highlight Matthew presents. So it's a little bit longer, so we'll read it as we go. But we want to consider this text you know, by way of outline. This passage features five different character groups, each one getting their own turn in the spotlight. And it's a good way to, to watch the action unfold. So we'll, we'll trace it this way, following these five groups. And so let's jump into it. We'll begin with this first group that gets our attention. Number one, you could say the deranged demoniacs. Starting in verse 28, the deranged demoniacs. Verse 28 picks up the action. It says, when he, Jesus, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And before we get acquainted with these two demon-possessed men, verse 28 gives us the setting It says, when he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadarenes. It's picking up right where the previous passage left off. And that'd be with one of the greatest highlights of all of Christ's ministry, stilling the storm at sea. If you're recalling, after an exhausting day of ministry, Jesus decides to depart. They're on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He wants to visit the eastern shore. So it's evening. They get on the boat. They're going to cross the lake. But during that overnight journey, a massive storm hits, a huge tempest, and the little fishing boat 
is swamped. They're, they're panicking. They're going to sink. They're going to die. Meanwhile, Christ, he, he was so exhausted, he's found just sound asleep. He's sleeping through the whole thing. The disciples finally wake Jesus, believing maybe he can do something to save them. And he can. And he does. Verse 26, he stands up. He rebukes the storm, which then becomes, it says, perfectly calm. And I mean, talk about a highlight. This, this is a huge deal. It leaves the disciples wondering in fear and amazement. Verse 27, they're like, who is this? What, what kind of a man is this? Who's in the boat with us? They're realizing more and more that though the one they're following appears as a man, he's more than just a man. He's the God-man. That was last week. Verse 28 now picks things up when they arrive on the other side of the lake, the eastern shore. Again, verse 8, 28, when he came to the other side. And so now we're going to find out what happens the next day on the other side of the lake. Now, just as a quick aside, I, I am very curious with what the rest of that boat ride was like that night. This is, you know, we just get the highlights. There's more things we would want to know. Like Jesus stills the storm. It's perfectly calm. The disciples wonder, you know, what kind of a man is this? Like, what happened next? Did they just like sit there in stunned silence? Did they talk amongst themselves? They just pick up the oars. Eventually they start rowing again. But I want to know most is, did Jesus go back to sleep? <laughs> I, I really want to know that, but Though amusing, it's pointless to speculate, so we're just going to stick with the text. That takes us to the other side of the lake. You presume it's early morning. They've reached the country of the Gadarenes. It's so-called because of a prominent city of Gadara further south. Sometimes this region is called that of the Gerasenes because of an even more prominent city even further south. Overall, this wider region is known as the Decapolis, which means ten cities, and what set this region apart is that it was Gentile-dominated. Most Jews did not go to the eastern side of the lake that was the Gentile side, the Decapolis. Mostly Gentiles lived here, a fact that's going to be soon confirmed as we encounter some pig farmers, something Jews did not do. So we wonder what business Jesus has in this region. It's the Jewish Messiah came for Israel. Why is he here? Well, in God's sovereignty, there are no accidents in the ministry of his son. He, he has a divine appointment with a couple of demon-possessed men. And so now we're introduced to really the first group in the story, whom we can call deranged demoniacs, as Jesus and his disciples come ashore. Verse 28 says that two demon-possessed men spot them and really rush upon them. They're coming out of these tombs. Now, I'll mention real quick, if you read the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, it only mentions one man. There is one demon-possessed man. That's not a contradiction. It'd be a contradiction if they said only one man came at them, but they don't say that. Rather, it seems evident that of these two men, one of them was vocal. One was like the spokesman, did the talking. One of them interacted with Jesus. Mark and Luke just emphasize the one. Matthew clumps them together. And we still talk like this, by the way. Maybe you get home one day and you tell your spouse, hey, can you believe it? I saw my old high school friend at the store today. We spent a little time catching up, and he says hi. Now, in reality, you saw your old friend and his wife, but you only really talk to your old friend, so you only feel the need to mention him to your spouse. And so be it. There's nothing wrong with that. We talk like this still all the time. But that being said, what's more significant than 
the number of these men is their condition, and that would be demon-possessed. This translates just a single word in the Greek, daimonizomai. It's a word that just literally means you're held captive, you're under the power of a demon. And sometimes it's translated as demoniac, as it is down in verse 33. Now, we're not going to get into an exhaustive study on what the Bible says about demons this morning, but we can include just a few brief points. That first, demon possession is presented as real. The demons are real spiritual beings. They're angels who have joined Satan in his fall and rebellion against the will of God. And so there are real unseen forces of evil at work. And secondly, demon possession is presented as rare. There's only one instance mentioned in the entire Old Testament. It obviously has some prevalence in the Gospels around the ministry of Jesus, but then it shows up in Acts 16, and after that, it's gone. Demon possession, casting out demons are never mentioned again in the rest of the New Testament. Nothing is said. really get the impression that the forces of darkness flocked to the area and the time when the Son of Man appeared to oppose his work. Thirdly, though, when it does happen... Demon possession is presented as a threat. I mean, it is not good. The Bible doesn't reveal how, but demons possess the ability to gain varying degrees of control over unbelievers. The result is always harmful to the person. Sometimes this is a straight up physical harm. After the transfiguration, Jesus encounters this boy who had been demon possessed, afflicted. His father says on behalf of him, Mark 9, 22, speaking of the demon, it says, it has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Suicidal tendencies from a demon. Sometimes this is mental harm. We see demons leading people to a type of madness. They're detached from reality. They're made more like a wild beast. Now, sadly, it appears that these two men in Matthew 8 were being entirely afflicted by demons, physically and mentally. Demons had essentially gained total control over them, resulting in just the the deepest anguish and suffering. How does Matthew describe their condition? Verse 28, he first says they were coming out of the tombs. Mark and Luke clarify that this is where they lived. This was their home. These were tombs hewn out of the face of a cliff. You can still find them in that region, by the way, uh, the, this area on the eastern shore where there are tombs in the cliffs. They dwelled among the dead. Obviously, they were outcast from society, and part of the reason for that was their violence. End of verse 28, they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. How do you think they got that reputation? I mean, it seems undoubted that they had violently assaulted people who tried to pass by that road. There's a nearby road, and they would fall upon people and beat them to a pulp. And as a result, the townspeople viewed them as like an off-limit zone. You don't go there. That's a bad part of town. You avoid the tombs because of these two men. Now, you might think if they're so dangerous and violent, why wouldn't the authorities or the townspeople band together and go, go bind them, go arrest them, put them in, in jail. And, well, they tried. They tried that, but it didn't work. This comes from Mark's account, Mark 5, 3 through 4. 
he says of them that no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. The chains had been torn apart by him, the shackles broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Talking like Samson-level strength here in these demon-possessed men. And with, with a seemingly like supernatural power, no one could restrain them. They tried. It failed. And the real sad part is, it seems like a lot of that power was then turned on themselves in a self-destructive manner. Mark 5.5 5 adds, it says, Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. You can just hear and feel that the constant torment these men were in. They, they were like wild beasts. And Luke adds, he had not put on any clothing for a long time. And the, the demons within truly had made them more like animals than men. And that's their MO. That's, that's what they do. It's the goal of Satan to corrupt God's creation. That often includes defacing the image of God in man. As humans, we like to, you know, kids are rebellious. They will deface property, deface a statue, deface artwork. Satan likes to deface us and the image of God in us. And put together, these men were cast out from society. They're ostracized. For the Jews, at least, they'd be unclean. They're violent. They're savage. They're dangerous. They had no dignity. Their shame was exposed. They frequently harm themselves. They're shouting nonstop in terror. They're, they're just living in a never-ending nightmare. By the way, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus never blames anyone for demon possession. They're held captive. Even if the townspeople felt compassion on them, there was just nothing they could do. That These demons within them were just too strong. And speaking of, these two deranged demoniacs were so thoroughly dominated by these demons that, that the men themselves fade into the background in this story. As this episode continues, Matthew moves our attention to a second group, and that would be the demons inside. They now show up as the real actors. They are the ones who are going to speak. But as fierce as these demons seem, it appears that they have met their match in Jesus. So second group, number two, the distraught demons. The distraught demons, verse 29. It says, and they cried out, saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? It should be readily apparent now that the men aren't speaking. This, this is the demons inside them speaking to Jesus. The real subject has changed. This is confirmed in Luke where Jesus himself addresses, not these men, but he speaks to the demons inside of them. And what really stands out, though, is how they address Jesus. They don't call him by his personal earthly name, Jesus. They rather refer to him by his divine superlative title, Son of God. What do we have to do with each other? Son of God. Now, in case you don't know, Son of God is a title of deity. That's how it's presented in the New Testament. This is made clear throughout. An example, John 5.18 that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. Why? It says because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
Same thing, John 10, 30, where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And later in verse 36, he calls himself the Son of God. It says in, in response, John 10, 33, the Jews, they pick up stones to stone him, and they say, for our good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Many other examples of this, Jesus being the Son of God, means he's God the Son, come down. It's just like the angel, the good angel, announced at his birth in Luke one thirty two, that he will be great, he will be called Son of the Most High. His divine nature, though, was veiled by his humanity during his earthly ministry. And so when Jesus came, he was not immediately recognized as the Son of God by all. In fact, in all the Gospels, the human characters don't recognize Jesus as the Son of God until much later. <clears throat> really, in Matthew, all, all of the words and works of Jesus come together in a climax in Matthew 16, where after all this ministry, Peter finally recognizes and confesses who Jesus really is. Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Finally, someone got it right. Like they're starting to get it. He's, he's not just a man. He is the God-man. He is God. Jesus then says to Peter, by the way, that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This, this was divine knowledge revealed by God's word and spirit. Now, all that being said, it is very significant that in the Gospels, the first group to identify and confess the the real identity of Jesus would be the demons. Now, obviously, they're not confessing in allegiance, but the point is, long before the human characters, that they they know who Jesus is. They immediately know who Jesus is. They're from the same, you might say, spiritual realm. They're not fooled by his fleshly veil. They always know right away, he's the Christ, he's the Son of God. So far in Matthew's gospel, the only other person who has recognized Jesus as the Son of God would be the devil when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Next, the next person would be, well, these demons right here in Matthew 8. Again, being part of the spiritual realm, though they're in rebellion against God, they know who Jesus is without a doubt. And for us, though, as we're reading Matthew's gospel, even though it's, it's coming from a hostile witness, we're still meant to take this as another affirmation of the full identity of Jesus because it's the one thing they have right that he is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. And because of his full identity, the demons also recognize his full authority. He can command all things. This is evidenced in what these distraught demons say next. At the end of verse 29, they, they ask, Have you come here to torment us before the time. That's a very interesting phrase, very telling. They reveal this awareness about some time. This is not the ordinary Greek word for time, chronos, which refers to like time and a clock, time of day. This is the word kairos, which speaks of like a season, a special event, a special occasion. So uh, some special time is coming. What will happen at that time, they know this will be a time, a day of judgment. Or more specifically, they say torment. 
this word torment was used back in verse 6 to describe the paralyzed, uh, the centurion's paralyzed servant who was being fearfully tormented by his condition. This word could also be used to describe what the demons were doing to these two men. They were making them live in agony and terror night and day. And if the golden rule holds what, what these demons had done to so many others, well, it's going to be done to them. Right? They, they will know torment. A day of torment has been appointed for them. And they know this. They know their doom. It's like Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 41. He says that on that day, they will be cast into the lake of fire and the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It was made first for them. And that's where they're going to go. Likewise, Acts 17.31 says, Paul preaches that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof by raising him from the dead. The demons know that that day is coming, and they know the guy in front of them is that man. The Son of God will be their judge. God allowed Satan and demons to rebel, most certainly. He allowed them to corrupt his creation with full knowledge and planning. This is part of his own greater plan for his greater glory through the redemption in his son. But he will by no means allow their rebellion to persist forever or in the scope of eternity for long. The day is fixed when they will all enter into judgment. Evil will be removed. They will go no further. And regarding that coming day, the demons have no hope. They know there, there is no plan of salvation for them. God, and the mystery of his will, made a plan of salvation for us. There's none that we know of for the angelic beings. There's no redemption for them. But they did not expect to encounter the Son of God on that day. And so now in our text, the only hope they have is simply to not be judged before the time. And so with that in mind, they shift their attention to this herd of swine. And that brings us, I guess we could say, to the third group in the story, number three, the doomed swine. The doomed swine. Verse 30 says, Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. Matthew continues setting the scene. That's not an irrelevant detail, of course. He points out this, this herd of swine feeding in the distance. Mark adds a little detail. He gives us some numbers. It says there's about 2,000 pigs in this herd. That's, that's a massive herd covering this mountainside. They, they weren't like being able to touch them. They weren't that close, but they could clearly see it just over there in the distance, not too far away. They could have smelled this herd. They could have heard this herd. And I wouldn't be surprised if the disciples were questioning Jesus as they were approaching the shore. Like, are, are you sure you want to land here? Like, wh why are we here? This is Gentile territory. And don't forget, pigs were the most unclean animals to the Jews. But this herd of swine had their own role to play in this story. As the demons see this herd, I guess it gives them an idea. They make a request. Verse 31. It says then that the demons began to entreat him saying, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. This is a very peculiar and bizarre request. 
Like, why, why would the demons ask to be sent into a herd of swine? And speculation abounds. You might wonder, like, they're unclean spirits. Do they feel at home in unclean animals? Possible, I guess. I think we can say this from the text, what we know, that these demons were not expecting to face the Son of God on this day. It's not Judgment Day yet, but here he is. And they know he just has to say one word, and they will be tormented before the time. Part of that torment would include being bound and restricted before the time. And that fear is supported by what the demons say in Luke's account. He adds a detail, Luke 8.31. It says, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now, this, this place, the abyss, shows up several times in the New Testament. It's always a place of imprisonment for Satan and demons. That's its sole function. It's like a maximum security prison for demons. And you go in, you don't come out until released. It involves a total cessation of activity and influence. And the worst of the worst demons appear to be held there until the day of judgment, like some from the days of Noah. That's 2 Peter 2.4. And so like these demons, they know they're doomed. They know there's no hope for their salvation. Their only hope they have is just not to be bound and tormented before the time. And so they, they just need to find some way to escape this unpredicted encounter with the Son of God. They know Jesus is going to make them come out of these men. And so entering the herd of swine, it just seems to be their only other option, their only, their only thing they can do. So they make their request. Now at this point, even if you don't know this story, if you've not read this before, you probably know how it's going to play out. That, that herd is doomed. There's no way that those pigs are making it out of this thing. But as we watch it unfold, here really our attention shifts yet again, this time to Jesus, who finally speaks. A fourth group who's just a person. Uh, number four, a dynamic savior. You might say a fourth actor appears on stage, the dynamic savior. Verse 32. It says, and he said to them, go. And they came out and went into the swine. And the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Like this herd was peacefully grazing in the morning. There was no indication they were in any danger. Later, we will see they were being watched by herdsmen. This is just like a normal morning. There, there's, no ex, there's no natural explanation for, for what happens next. But Jesus just merely says one word, go. And as a result, all the demons came out of these men, entered the swine. What happens after this, again, it's, it's equally bizarre and in a sense unexpected. You can imagine this huge herd. They're docile. It's morning. They're, they're grazing peacefully. But then, look, what, what happens? Suddenly, they become agitated, hostile. They're, the herdsmen wake up. They're bewildered at what they see. It's like their pigs are possessed, and they were. A stampede forms. All of a sudden, the herd strikes off, uh, takes off straight for the lake. They reach this uh, steep cliff bank where when you start down, there's no stopping. They all enter the water. They plunge in the water. As some have said, they take a swine dive into the water. It's one of my old favorite Bible jokes. But there they all perish. None of them survive. They're all drowned in the lake. This was not a, a natural event. 
You know, demon possession is always self-destructive to the host. It's no different than for with these pigs. But we don't. We still wonder, like, why? Why would the demons do this? They, I thought they wanted to go into the herd of swine. Was this all a ploy? Did they secretly desire to enter the herd, wanting to destroy them, hoping that the herdsmen would turn on Jesus? I guess that's possible. And now that the pigs are all dead, does that mean the demons are now in a disembodied state? Is this another way for them to escape the situation? We just don't have the revelation to, to know. We also wonder why Jesus gave into the request of the demons. Why didn't he torment them before the time, send them into the abyss? Here, though, I think we can answer from the text that Jesus wanted to use this as an extraordinary way to manifest his power and authority. In the very next passage, beginning of Matthew 9, Jesus wants to display that he has authority to forgive sins. So he tells someone, your sins are forgiven. That, that's an easy thing to say. How do we know like that's actually true? Well, all right, well, Jesus says next, all right, how about get up and walk? And so this paralyzed man gets up and walks for all to see. And so now everyone knows that because of this sign, Jesus really does have the authority to forgive sins. And look, I think the same is going on here. It's easy to say you can make demons depart. It's easy to say you have power over demons. But look, as everyone witnesses this possessed herd unexplainably rush to their death in the lake, well, now you have a vivid demonstration that Jesus really has total authority over demons. He can command them at will, and a true deliverance has taken place. Remember, in Matthew 8 and 9 overall, Matthew has a theme. He's relating to us the divine authority of Jesus. He possesses God's authority because he's God. That authority extends over sickness and disease. It extends over nature and creation. And now we see it extending over Satan and demons. And that is what is being put on display here. A Mark and Lude Uh, Mark and Luke, rather, add that right before this, Jesus asks the main spokesman of the two, he says, what's your name? And the demon inside replies, and he says, "Uh, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion, that's a Roman term, a a Roman legion was 6,000 troops. Does this mean that these men were possessed by 6,000 demons? Other passages indicate like multiple demon possession is possible. And remember, they're sent into a herd of 2,000 swine. It's notable that not two drown in the lake, not 20, but all 2,000 drown in the lake. That very well may suggest that a couple thousand demons did inhabit these men. We don't know, but at the very least, we know we're dealing with very powerful, pernicious demons. But even still, as powerful or as numerous as they were, there's still no match for Jesus, and that is the point. Later on, Jesus will delegate some of his authority to his disciples, enabling them to cast out demons and deliver people. And sometimes they will succeed. Other times they will fail. They will struggle. Demons will not always listen to them. That never happens to Jesus, though, because his power, his authority are inherent in him, and they are supreme. You can combine the power of Satan and all the demons together, 
and that there's no comparison to the power of Jesus. With just a single word, he can bind them all, he can destroy them all. One day, he will. There's just no comparison in power because Jesus is the Son of God. And that is what we are really meant to see here. Jesus handles this legion of demons effortlessly. He doesn't stop to pray. He doesn't have to. Relying on his own authority, he just says the word go. And however many demons were inside these men, they they have no choice but to obey, and off they go. And I think in Matthew's account, it's very significant. He's showing us something in the fact that in this whole passage, Jesus only says one word. It's like the actor in the play, and he has got one line, and his line is just one word. It's the command, go, which means depart, be gone. That's all he says. But it's showing us that, that one word is all it takes for Jesus to still storms, for Jesus to move mountains, for Jesus to cast out a legion of demons. He just needs one word. And with that one word, we see yet another proof of the true identity of Jesus, that he really is the Son of God. And we are meant to respond, as always throughout these chapters, with, with our own wonder and admiration, reverence, worship, discipleship. But not everyone has that response to the power and authority of Jesus. And so lastly, one more group grabs our attention. Not everyone receives this Jesus, even when they find out who he is. Number five, the disturbed townspeople. The disturbed townspeople from verse 33 to the end. After all this happened, it says in verse 33, the herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. So we first see the response just of the herdsmen themselves. You know, with a herd this large, there had to be several of these guys. And the other gospels make clear, as says Matthew, that they were eyewitnesses, that they saw this thing unfold, that they knew what happened. These guys knew they were near the territory of these demoniacs. They were close, but not close enough. They knew these, these guys were unhinged. But this morning, they witnessed something strange, unprecedented. They're, they're probably watching the whole scene unfold. They see Jesus, his disciples, arrive on boat, depart. Soon thereafter, these two men start rushing at them. And the herdsmen are surely expecting they're going to devour them. They're going to you know, beat them up. They're going to tear them apart. It's what they do. No one can stop their power. But instead, they're watching from a distance. These demoniacs come before Jesus, and then they bow down. That's a detail only Mark adds, but they actually bow down before Jesus. They don't have a choice. He's the son of God. They didn't know who they were running up to. And then the next thing the herdsmen know, they can't hear the conversation, but the next thing they know, they they see their pigs turn rabid. And then the earth shakes and they all stampede into the lake and they all drown themselves. And they're surely wondering like, what is going on here? They eventually turn their attention back to Jesus and the demoniacs. Only they're no longer demoniacs. They're now just two men. And Matthew here, he's giving us the briefest account. He also focuses most of our attention right here on the response of the townspeople in the last verse. We'll come to that shortly. But I still think it's useful to add a few details from Mark and Luke. And they reveal how after this incident, these men were, it says, uh, clothed, that their dignity had been restored. It says they were sitting down, 
It's almost like they're assuming the position of discipleship. It says they were in their right mind, that they had they'd come back to reality. The herdsmen, though, they saw this and they understood what happened. They, they knew what was going on at the end. So what did they do? They ran away to tell people. They went to the city. They told everyone what had happened. Verse 33 says that includes what happened to the demoniac. So they put two and two together. They, they figured it out. They knew what happened. Now, at first glance, you might think, hey, this is great. Right? They're, they're spreading the word. They're telling people about Jesus. This is great. I don't think we should get that impression because you know, when all the people they told show up, the, the townspeople, they're not happy to see Jesus. But instead, they ask him to leave. Verse 34, the last verse, it says, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. And that's how the, the story ends. It makes us wonder, like, wait, that doesn't seem right. How can this be? That's, that's not the right ending. We would expect after uh, this great a miracle of deliverance that like, these people would be rejoicing. They should be bringing out all of their sick family members to Jesus to be healed. They should be begging Jesus to stay, to like, like, teach them. But instead, just the opposite. They, they want nothing more than for Jesus. Just, just leave. And look, back in verse 31, remember how it says the demons entreated Jesus? They're imploring him. They're, they're begging him. You know, don't you know, send us into the swine. Well, like verse 34 uses the same word. It says they implored him. That's actually the same word in the Greek. But now for the townspeople, their request, their entreaty is that Jesus would just go away. Realize like what Jesus said to the demons, they are saying to Jesus, just go, just depart. We don't want you here. This is a response of total rejection. Why did they reject him? I think you can say this is unbelief, obviously fueled by greed. The only way you witness this miraculous deliverance and get upset is if you believe you know, 2,000 pigs are more valuable than two men. These townspeople, apparently, they could tolerate a couple of self-destructive demoniacs. I mean, they can hurt themselves as long as they leave our property alone. We, we don't go close to them anymore. They could tolerate them. But look, Jesus now, he's the destructive one. Look, look what he just did. This is a, a huge economic loss. This is their local economy just, just tanked. And thinking back to the herdsmen, this leads us to believe, you know, when they were, you know, spreading the word, that was not in celebration. That was in self-preservation. What are they saying when they go back to town? Like, they have to be saying, hey, we just lost the whole herd. All 2,000 of our pigs just rushed into the lake and drowned, but it wasn't our fault. We didn't do this. This was not our fault. This guy, Jesus, he did this. They were clearly passing the blame. The people go, and they find out it's true, and their response is fear mixed with outrage, but no room for belief. And that's how many people respond to Jesus. He is a rejected son of God, often. And look, this was a legitimate loss, but I mean, shouldn't the, the townspeople be thankful that these two men, made in the image of God, made to suffer torment day and night, were finally freed? Like, shouldn't they look on the bright side? And also, shouldn't they stop and think, like, who is this Jesus? Like the disciples in the boat. Who is this? 
He, he d- displays the power of God. Shouldn't they stop and ask, like, why did he come? Why did he show up? Why is he here? What else can he do? If he has power over Satan and demons, what else does he have power over? Like Maybe sin? Maybe death? But no, they encountered the power of God in the person of Jesus. They even encountered the mercy of God in, in the work of Jesus. But they wanted nothing to do with him. They were hardened in unbelief, they're greedy, self-willed, and they just begged him to depart. This is so unexpected until you realize this is still how a lot of people respond. Even when they learn who Jesus is, they just want nothing to do with him. So they beg him to depart. You know, uh, same as last week, the way Matthew ends this account reveals where he wants us to set our minds. There's really, uh, you could say, a last group that gets our attention in this passage, and that would be us. Right? As we continue to read and learn about Jesus and all these accounts, we have to ask, how are we to respond? You know, we've seen in this passage further revelation of the identity of Jesus, that he is the Son of God. We've seen further revelation of the authority of Jesus, that with just one word, hush, he can still a storm. Or with one word, go, he can cast out a legion of demons. This is divine authority, and this is the main lesson of these chapters. This is who Jesus is, his identity, his authority. But in light of that, I believe it's only right for us to reflect on how we are responding to the identity and authority of Jesus. The previous count of Jesus stilling the storm at sea ends with the disciples wondering, what kind of a man is this? Who is Jesus? And it's almost like, as one ancient commentator pointed out, that these demons come out of their tombs to answer that question. He is the Son of God. But it's not enough just to know that. The demons know that. But it does them no good. The demons believe that God is one and shudder, James 2.19. The townspeople... They know that too. But that knowledge is not unto salvation. Their fear should have turned into faith, but instead their fear only turned into flight. Look, a sense of fear and unworthiness is very appropriate whenever you encounter the presence of God, you might say. That's how Isaiah felt when he encountered a vision of God's glory. Isaiah 6.5, he responds and he says, Woe is me. For I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. There is a day of judgment coming. Jesus himself has been appointed that judge. And when people, when they stop to honestly consider this, when they behold the fierce holiness of God, they know no one's going to stand in that judgment. All are guilty. All are unrighteous. You, me, all of us. By our own merits, we have no hope. That realization should strike fear into you. Because in reality, back in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus was revealing that, remember the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels? His point was, that's going to be the place of perdition for all the lost. That's where all the lost go, into that place. All the unrighteous will join them in that torment. That's how God deals with all rebels. That appointed time of judgment is coming. It's fixed 
on God's calendar. There's no delaying it. There's no moving it. And unless you can present God perfect righteousness, you will not stand in that judgment. And when, when the proud, when the spiritually proud hear this, they respond like the townspeople. And that fear will just gives way to flight. They don't want to think about it. Just, just go away. God, don't, don't bother me, Jesus. I don't want to think about this. I don't believe this. Just, just let me live my life as I see fit. Some choose to live in denial, and they, just, they want nothing to do with him. Others, maybe they know their sin, but they give into a type of resignation. They're more like the demons, and their response is merely like, well, just don't torment me before the time. Just leave me be for now. If we knew Jesus only as judge, that would be the appropriate response here. Just one of like hopeless fear and resignation, just like the demons. But you should know that in God's grace, that's not the case. Because in the mystery of his will, he made a plan of redemption for the sons of Adam, us. And we do not know Jesus only as judge. We are meant to know him as savior, that we never have to know him as judge. Like as fearful as the holiness and power of God are, you are meant to stop and ask, like the townspeople should have, like, who is this Jesus? And why did he come? And he came first, not to destroy, but to save. Like he says, uh, it says of him in John three seventeen, it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That's the point of his first coming. And how would this Jesus save? He would save by offering up his own perfect life on the cross. That's where he died to pay for our sins, to make atonement on our behalf, He knows we are all guilty, unworthy sinners. But he came to take away our sin, to give us his perfect righteousness by which we can stand before God and be welcomed by God. It's just like the angel said to Isaiah, who was standing there, and Isaiah was unworthy to be before God. But the angel took a burning coal from the altar and touched his lips and said this, Isaiah 6, 7, Behold, this has touched your lips your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. It's the only way we can stand before God by his mercy. Jesus died to pay our sin debt in full. He rose on the third day, proving once for all that his authority extends over death itself. And in addition to that, though, this Savior's in his self-giving death, he also defeated Satan's power, which is tied to sin and death. You can recall Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. It's saying Jesus came. Why did he come? He came to set us all free from sin, and from Satan, and from death itself. And so our response, when we realize this, we see his identity, his authority, should not be fear leading to flight, but fear leading to faith. Don't dare bid him depart, but rather as as he extends his mercy to you in the gospel before the day of judgment, you are to respond and say, come, Lord Jesus. Don't go away. Come. I need you. 
You're to respond in belief. I mentioned John 3.17. How about before and after that? You know John 3.16. That for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it says in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. You don't want to be like these townspeople. You don't want to be among those who so love the darkness that they hate the light and they rush upon it to put it out, to make it go away. Rather, in humility, come to this Jesus, poor in spirit, mourning over your sin, asking for his mercy. You will find it and acceptance and new life. And speaking of Jesus, can do for you what he did for these demoniacs. We recall after stilling the storm outside, here he's really stilling the storm inside. He brought them peace and just leaves behind an amazing picture, you could say, of new birth, what he does for all of us who believe in him. Scripture speaks of all of us being in bondage to sin, to Satan, to death. He came ashore to liberate us all from our enemies. And so when you encounter Jesus, be it today, through his word preached, or alone, through his word read. Do not harden your hearts. Do not love the darkness. Do not bid him depart, but bow before him. Trust him, believe in him, follow him. Peace and hope and life are being held out to you, but also the warning of judgment. So choose life and follow Christ. It says in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's be those who believe, follow, obey the Son. Let's make that our prayer. Our God in heaven, we, we cherish you for your word as given to us to give us life. And that life is found in your Son. And so that's why your word reveals your son, his person, his work, his power, his identity, his authority. Thank you for giving us eyes to behold the truth, but we now need to respond to it. And we see how not to respond. It's not to flee from you. It's not to make you go away. We cannot ignore you. And all will be held into account as part of your righteousness, your justice, your perfection is to hold evil into account. And that's all of us. We are all without guilt, all sinners before a righteous God. Yet you are a loving God. You've proved that. There's nothing more you could do to prove that love. You sent Christ, your son, the son of God, take on flesh to die on the cross in our place to rise again. In him only can we have forgiveness of sins, new life, resurrection, and freedom from our soul's enemies of sin and Satan and death. In Christ, there's hope. Open eyes this morning. Open blind eyes that cannot see him to see who he is and then open their hearts to, to follow him, to not run away, but to, to cling to him, to go draw near. You promise that as we draw near to you, you will draw near to us. And so for any here who, who don't know him at all, that you'd open their eyes, their minds, their hearts to behold and believe 
For us who have done so, may we cling tighter. May we want to come even closer, follow and obey this gracious Lord who gives us life. We do this all to his praise, his glory, and in his name. We pray, amen.